Welcome to episode three of The Golf Guy. In this episode, we talk with Todd Eckenrode, one of the leading golf architects in Southern California, about a whole range of topics, the architects that influenced him, um, some of the courses he's played, how they've affected the way he goes about his design work, uh, and a whole raft of topics about golf architecture that I um, hope you find interesting. So right now, episode three, The Golf Guy. Hello, everyone. So uh, another edition of The Golf Guy, and I am really, really happy today to uh, an honor to have with us um, Todd Eckenrode, who is one of the um, really leading golf architects um, in Southern California. And um, Todd, thank you very much for joining today. Appreciate it. Um, maybe just to um, uh, get started a little bit, uh, you could sort of give folks a little bit of your background and, and kind of how you, um, you know, came to um, uh, decide to go into uh, golf design. I know you were, you know, played at Arizona and, and, and Santa Barbara a little bit and, you know, were a notable player, um, but just be interested to kind of how you moved from, from you know, that into, um, into golf design. Sure. Well, I was really fortunate to grow up um, and learn the game on a great golf course and great uh, architectural treasure, which is Pos Campo Golf Club up in Santa Cruz. And, you know, I think at the time, of course, in high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do like anybody. And so um, I certainly didn't have golf course architecture in mind, but, um, you know, when you're around something like that, it, it rubs off on you, I'm sure. And so that, that definitely had a, a profound influence you know, and how I started to look at golf courses and, and ultimately probably led to my interest in wanting to get into the field. Um, I, I did play college golf and that was a lot of fun. Not, not so much at Arizona. I was uh, probably the low man on the totem pole there. So um, tough competition there. I mean, that's the, they, were, they were a great team at that time. And uh, so I wasn't going to play there. It was fairly obvious. So I transferred to UC Santa Barbara and played three years there. And that was it. Just a great experience. I was fortunate my coach there, which is a wonderful guy, uh, Top Rowan, who's um, uh, an avid golfer and lover of great courses, belongs to a wonderful golf course, um, really set our schedule up for great experiences. So we would travel to Yale and play Yale, a uh, wonderful golf course. We would travel to Augusta College's tournament so that we could go to the Masters that week. They, allowed, they gave practice round tickets and we got to see Augusta. So, you know, I think that college experience also had a lot of influence on, uh, you know, the ability to see classic courses and that started shaping how I looked at golf courses as well. Uh, and then, you know, just kind of pursued the typical path, I suppose, of getting a degree in landscape architecture um, and, uh, and then got into a little bit of golf course construction, which a lot of designers had, had recommended, you know, go get your hands dirty a little bit. And right. uh, I was very briefly in that, and I had a few offers and, and, uh, and took an offer from a, a gentleman in Tennessee, uh, Gary Baird, and uh, just kind of launched it from there. So you, you touched on this a little bit. I, some of the um, really tremendous courses um, that you uh, had experience with, uh, Pastiempo, of course, you know, growing up in Santa Cruz um, is certainly one. I, you know, as I, as I mentioned to you, I just had the... Um, great fortune for the first time to play it about a month ago. Um, and it was everything I'd heard. And then some, 
Um, yeah. And uh, but but I'm also interested. I mean, you going to Santa Barbara, the Valley Club's right there. You had that experience. You mentioned Yale. I grew up um, in um, West Hartford, not much more than 35, 40 uh, minutes from New Haven. Um, yeah. Played Yale. Played Yale in college golf, actually. Um, and um, uh, real different course, right? I mean, you know, just right. just the, I think people talk about the scale of Yale. I mean, just this immense rolling ground and everything. So really different type places. I think you even mentioned, if I remember, um, your uh, uh, opportunity to play Royal County Down, which I've had the very lucky to play once as well. Um, another just tremendous rugged terrain type place. So kind of curious, you know, those places versus some of the, the McKenzie places, kind of what were your takeaways? How did that sort of influence your thinking at all as you sort of started yeah. to get into this? That's a great question. You know, McKenzie courses are, are certainly um, have their own style. And, um, you know, we have a great representation of them in California from Meadow Club up north is first here, um, you know, down through Pasatempo and Cypress, of course, Valley Club. And so we're very lucky to have, um, you know, and there are other great lesser known clubs as well. And I probably will miss and apologize if I can get any, but certainly Claremont. <laughs> And Green Hills up in the San Francisco area, and even the Nine Hole or Northwoods up in uh, the Sonoma Valley, which is a lot of fun. I got to play that recently for the first time. Um, so yeah, he was as good as it gets, you know. And that's certainly you could call my favorite architect. And obviously, with the background of Pasatempo and playing Valley Club every Monday at Santa Barbara, that was uh, uh, an easy influence. And horses are just so special; they're so uh, they're so fun to play. You know, it's one thing you'll take away from them that. They don't beat you up. They're so incredibly interesting, um, wonderfully natural. You know, and he had an eye, of course, for for aesthetics and, and a sense of naturalness and incorporating them into his designs. And he alluded to some of those other courses, uh, even though Yale is extremely uh, manufactured in some ways. And you have the, uh, you know, the very uh, dictated shapes of, of, uh, of McDonald and, and that architecture of architectural style. Um, it still has a sense of naturalness. That's, that's amazing. And part of that is the scale and the surround certainly, um, Royal right. County down. I was fortunate enough to play the British Am there. And, uh, that is about as rugged and natural as you can get. And it's, it's just such a, such a wild adventure you know how many blind shots over hills aiming at a rock and, and you come over the crest and it's just this this scale and the sense of beauty that is just breathtaking um and so that was also as you mentioned just a, a great experience and very influential on how i looked at things yeah for sure and and we should also i i know you have roots in ohio and and sort of you sort of in on your trips back there you as I understand it, sort of got introduced a little bit to Donald Ross, which is obviously a whole nother set of courses, right? And you're familiar with those lines. And there's some Absolutely. tremendous courses. Of course, I mean, he built so many, but in the Midwest, yeah. especially a lot of great courses. Absolutely. Yeah. I was fortunate. My family was from Ohio. So we go back every summer and I try to play, uh, you know, as many of the great courses in the area as I could. And they were all Donald Ross courses predominantly. One, there was one really good Walter right. Traps course, but um he, he was a fantastic architect, very prolific, you know, so as you mentioned, uh, you know, hundreds of golf courses predominantly through the, the core of the country or the Midwest. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I, I don't certainly have as much knowledge about him, but, you know, the takeaways I had of the courses I played were he was excellent at routing the golf course and utilizing what you might see typically in the Midwest, which is sort of that rolling land of large, large creekway valleys and rolling hills and things like that. Um, and he was very good at routing the golf course around, across those, those big uh, features in, with great variety. So you'd see, you know, a tee shot over the valley and then the next hole would come back and play the green into the valley and the next hole diagonally across the valley with a green on the edge. Right. And, uh, you know, just really good routing of how to use the, the simple features of the land that he often had. And that's generalizing, of course. He had Pinehurst and other, other, uh, other um, landscapes that were quite different. But the ones I played in Ohio all had, all had that feel, that, that sort of rolling Midwestern land. And uh, he was excellent at it. The one golf course I got to play the most, I had a friend uh, who was a member at Brookside in Canton, Ohio. And uh, some of the wildest greens you will ever see. And so, you know, anytime we get into design and on our own courses and push the envelope a little bit, I just think back to those and I realize we're not even coming close, you know. So it's uh, just buried elephants, a lot of those in, in some of those greens. And uh, it, it makes the golf course really challenging and really fun as a member course, especially. You know, you, you're, you're never right. going to have this shot. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, well... And, you know, and talking about wild greens and using the land, I mean, nothing does, uh, that's one of the things I was a real takeaway for me at Pastiempo, especially that back nine, the way that Barranca is used so beautifully and, and, you know, just, you know, all sorts of angles, it comes into play. I mean, you know, between that and, and of course the greens, I mean, wow. I mean, that, I mean, 16, of course, is the one everyone thinks of, but, but really just all of them. Um, it just, I, I remember asking them, what do you guys keep them on the stimp? And they said, well, like around nine, because if they gets into double digits, people spend three hours out there. Um, but oh, those greens are amazing. Just amazing. They are. They, they make the golf course to some extent. And as you mentioned, the routing around the natural features of that area makes the golf course as well. And, uh, you know, that's something I took away from from that design as I got to think of it later in life as I was practicing um, the profession, I should say, um, was was what you mentioned, how he utilized that brank on the back nine uh, and the variety of holes he got out of it. You know, it's used in a different way on every single hole. It's the main feature, right. but every hole plays around it or over it or aside it uh, differently. And uh, that's really genius, you know, in, in how to come up with such a collection of holes um, that are true standout holes. And then Valley Club has a similar uh, lesson in that. It's simpler, a simpler lesson, but it has, you know, a hill in the middle of the golf course, a greens playing into it, tees playing off of it, you know, playing alongside of it on the seventh, going up to the top of it for the eighth and playing across to another hill. So a more simple feature, but how do you get as many holes as you can playing in and around it? Um, in a variety of ways. And so we've, on our new golf courses, we've certainly focused on that. What's the feature of the land? How can we utilize it uh, and showcase it the most? And how can we utilize it and showcase it in a variety of ways? So. No, that, that makes sense. So with that sort of background, as we sort of start maybe talk a little bit about kind of how you approach um, design, I'm, I'm curious, because uh, you do a lot of um, restoration slash renovation work and then you you know do 
new designs as well. And um, I, I would think the the renovation restoration has got to be particularly challenging. I mean, you, you mean I would think, you know, you come in and you say, well, you're you're not unlike a new design where, yeah, you have the land, but you're kind of free to sort of do whatever you want. I mean, obviously you're, you're dealing with an existing course and you've got to kind of fit it into that. How do you sort of think about when you do renovations, restorations, um, you know, sort of uh, realizing your hands are somewhat tied. You can't just, you know, do things anew kind of, how do you think about uh, your approach to that versus when you're dealing with a new course? Sure. Well, for us, it, it a lot of it has to do with the age of the golf course. You know, if we're looking at a course that was built 30 or 40 years ago, and perhaps not by an architect that's, you know, tremendously valued, if you will, um, we look at it much more with uh, a blank slate or with, you know, a fresh eye, or um, and try to look at how can we maximize, how can we make this the best golf course we can, in our, you know, humble opinion of how we value design. Um, on really more of the majority of the work um, that we we do, which are designed by the likes of you know Mackenzie and William Bell, um, William Watson, you know these great architects of the tens and twenties, let's say, um, up and down California predominantly. Right. Uh, we we have such a reverence for the history and the age of the club, and such a reverence for the architects that I can't think of many times where we've sort of started off and just said, how can we reroute this place and make it much right, better? Right. I, I just have so much respect for what's there and generally the clubs do as well and they don't have any interest in that. So um, we, we look at those much more from a restorative standpoint and utilizing what's there and keeping the historic routing um, because there's great value to that also. Not only is it, right. is it generally already great but um you know there's great value to that you can't just make yourself a hundred year old golf club designed by william watson that's that's right. a wonderful thing to have and be able to hang your hat on as a club so we respect that and we try to work with that we we do a lot of research uh with a lot of uh friends in the industry who help us quite a bit and try to understand what was there originally and then see how it changed look at the aerials of the 20s look at the aerials of the 50s and start to see how it changed, um, where it went and where it is today. And how do we perhaps unwind that to get it back to, bring back some of the best qualities that have been lost over, over many decades of either tinkering or tree planting or, or other you know, reasons why it might've changed. So uh, I think it's, that's important. We wanna understand what it was and how can we bring it back and really uh, make it the best club and the best course it can be. And generally that means going backwards a little bit. You know, just on that, it might be interesting to just spend a minute talk about, I know you did that at Lakeside, and, and we've seen a lot of this, you know, uh, restoring of golden age type courses. You know, we just finished the U.S. Open at Wingfoot, and um, and which, it, it's interesting, and it may not be obvious to people, that over time, courses change, green shrink bunkers encroach things. I mean, maybe just talk about that because I'm sure you see that when you, then you go dig out the old pictures, whether it's that par three at Lakeside or, you know, whatever, and you say, gee, the green is, was used to be totally different. And, and um, it's interesting how time has that impact on golf courses. Yes, absolutely. You know, I used to, in the summer, I used to work at 
uh, Lacumba Country Club, which is another wonderful old. Oh, sure. Yeah. Of course, Santa Barbara. And I was Mo Green's out there for a summer job, you know, in college. And I remember specifically doing the cleanup, Mo, where you kind of wrap, go around the perimeter against the collar and not wanting to hit the collar because it would scalp it. And you look back, you know, to your boss. And so that's just a natural tendency. So if you, if you, if you kind of err on the safe side and, and miss that collar by an eighth of an inch even or a quarter inch, um, over time, that's many, many feet that comes in. And Lakeside was a great example. When we first started consulting there, what, a, what an incredible golf course. And the greens were extremely small, but you could see quite easily, you know, that the contours were 10, 12, 15 feet out. They were in rough now, but that where they used to be. Um, not only from looking at old pictures, but it was just pretty apparent where great hole locations would have been or little shelves or little swales. Um, and so, yes, that does happen at every single golf course. We can sell that. It can be as, as small as a few feet and as large as 15 feet or more, believe it or not. Um, wow. And so that's, that, is, that is something that's going to happen. And you do have to unwind that again. Uh, or you're going to lose these really interesting hole locations. You're going to have wear and tear on, on your you know, select handful of hole locations that you may be down to now. And it's just not as interesting. You know, generally what you're wing, right. losing are those wing hole locations, which are the most interesting right. hole locations typically. They're hanging on an edge or against a bunker. Um, and so those are the ones that are really exciting to reclaim. Um, and bunkers change as well, as you talked about. They, they're the most organic thing on the golf course in the sense of, um, of change. And, and they get so much play and the, and, and the clubs uh, replenish the sand and, Basically, they, you know, people come out of them, kick their shoes and or the rake and, and they're just they're constantly um, morphing. We, we uh, just did the first renovation on, a, on our original course we'd done 20 years ago, which was Brona Creek down in San Diego. And uh -huh. uh, it was interesting to work on that. And because we got to see the change over 20 years, we knew exactly what it was. And, you know, to take the excavator and to start to take the top off of the bunker, which we knew had built up with sand splash from the golfers. And there was 12 to 18 inches of bunker sand there. Um, so that wow. had come up wow. that much in the majority wow. of front bunkers, you know, where a lot of people are going to be. And then sure. that, that isn't going to magically tie in down to the green surface, which doesn't change as much. It's, it becomes a very steep slope into there. And then that steep slope extends into the green and, you start to lose whole locations in that sense as well. Um, where it used to be a whole location that was, you could put a pin on because it was a reasonable slope. It's now a very steep slope and, and it isn't. So um, yeah, those are just a couple of examples, as you mentioned, of, of how courses change. And again, I, I use that term unwind. We just need to, to go back and those are very functional restorations. Um, you know, right. sometimes restorations can be more uh, artistic where you're going back to the bunker style of McKenzie or Bell, or, you know, right. somebody, some of these architects who had a very distinct style. Right, for sure. Um, so you, you've got to have a super busy schedule. I mean, I, you, you, are, you must be traveling a lot. I mean, how much time are you spending on site? You know, I'm just curious kind of how you go about this stuff. I mean, you sort of go on site and maybe you do your drawings or whatever, but I mean, how much time are you, uh, you sort of spending on site watching the way the land's getting pushed around and how do you sort of go about that? Well, 
that's uh, you're alluding to when we're in construction, of course. And I'll talk about yeah. a typical year because this year is not a typical yeah. year. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> it's a good year for any of us, right? Yeah, that's good. So I agree. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been the slowest year in quite a while, but it is picking up. We have uh, three very active projects this fall, which will be a lot of fun. But in a typical year, you know, we might have from one to three projects that go into construction on major, you know, major scale. You know, we we generally. Okay work for 10 to 15 other clubs where we might be doing a small two week project in the fall, you know, and, and sure. that's just sort of on the side, um, some small improvements, but, and, um, but on a major scale two, one to three is our typical workload where we're, um, you know, really getting into a golf course and making some substantive, uh, improvements and, and changes. And, uh, those do require a lot of time on site. As you mentioned, we, we take great pride in that. We're out there on a very regular basis. If it's a local club, we're out there every week of construction, multiple times typically. Um, and that's so important. You know, you can't, you can't draw something in the office that's ever going to be as good as you can make it in the field. Right. Like yeah, it could be in the field, right. Yeah. And I don't happen to shape myself. Some architects do, but that's, you know, ult ultimately that's where it happens is when you're either shaping yourself or you're with the shaper who's building the bunkers, building the greens, building the tees, and really just going through that process. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, with, with great detail and, um, you can't replace that. It's, it's where it all happens and it's how you can reach the ultimate highest level of quality. And so, yeah, we do, we do spend a lot of time. It tends to be very seasonal. We work very much in the West, I would say with the majority of our work. And when you're working in the West, you're, you're working in the spring and the summer, maybe early fall. Um, and so in the winters, we're not so much, I, I've had a handful of winter projects, but generally, um, that's, that's when we're spending time designing, working on master plans for clubs, um, things that aren't in the, you're not necessarily in construction and in the spring, the summers and early falls we're we're very much, uh, out in the field and I won't see the office for two, three weeks at a time for sure. Right. No, it makes sense. So you mentioned you've been doing this, you know, 20 years, you mentioned the, the Verona project. And so you've seen a lot that's happened, you know, in the industry. I'm curious uh, in that regard, um, things like um, conservation efforts, um, environmental concerns, how have you seen that change? And I'll just sort of say, you know, from uh, my one vantage point, um, uh, you, of course, you know, did a phenomenal job on the redo at Brentwood Country Club, where I am. And, um, you know, uh, and, and talking about a barranca, used the barranca beautifully, uh, brought that back in. That was terrific. Um, but one of the things we we did, as you know, is took a lot of turf out of play. Um, and, you know, for, you know, in terms of saving on watering and, and, and that. And I'm just sort of curious, more generally, as you've done your projects, how has that kind of, um, you know, those type of environmental water concerns kind of factored in? And how have you seen that change over your career? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. Um, you know, from a general viewpoint of environmental um, design, if you will, uh, there has not been a lot of change because I've lived a short a short career, I guess you call it, in 20 years. Um, <laughs> Verona was a great example, and we tried to make Verona extremely different for San Diego. We didn't want it to be this lush parkland with non-native trees planted in rows down the sides. Uh, golf course, like a lot of courses are down there, we wanted, it, it was in a beautiful meadow up against these hills, surrounding mountains that are just absolutely gorgeous. Some incredible rock features and nothing but native California oak trees. 
And so we really embraced that and tried to make it a very big or broad golf course, which would have these grassland corridors and oak corridors between every hole. So no two holes are really connected um, in simple terms. And it creates this, these environmental corridors uh, and environmental setting that's, that's beautiful and, and very valid in the sense that it supports wildlife and flora and fauna and such. Um, and so, interestingly, we just worked on a very large project up in Northern California called Diablo Country Club last year. And mm -hmm. it, was, it was a very large renovation in the sense that we touched the whole site um, and uh, worked on a similar aspect, which it was just awarded yesterday, interestingly, from the ASGCA and, uh, Environmental Award um, oh, as a leader, leader in the industry. Um, and one of the judges was the uh, Audubon uh, International Society. And so what we accomplished there was similar, trying to create grassland corridors, riparian creekways that have been lost and piped over time. We restored all those, um, which were part of William Watson's original design in the 20s. And, uh, and so I, it's interesting because I think back to 20 years ago doing Brona and last year doing Diablo and the um the value in it in the the awards i guess you call it or, or recognition is the same so in that sense it, it hasn't changed much and people really value that and rightfully so um on a smaller scale and what you alluded to at brentwood is um as we got into droughts um you know many years ago uh water agencies started working on rebate programs where they would reward clubs right. to reduce their water footprint, if you will. And a lot of clubs really uh, embrace that. And Brentwood was one of them. Almost every club we work for in Southern California um, did the same. And we were able to reduce anywhere from maybe five or six acres to 20 to 25 acres of turf on a golf course, which might have 100 or 120 acres, you know, beforehand, just as uh, to understand the the scale or the scope of that reduction. Um, so pretty significant, you know, and, and I think what I yeah. found is the clubs really responded well to it. If it was planned well and they were done in the right areas, they made the golf course a better experience, a more natural experience. It didn't take away yeah. from playability. Um, they, were, they were often viewed skeptically going into them. It was more of a necessity that we need to reduce our water reliance. We need our, our right. water bills are going way up. We need to reduce our exposure there. And they became very positive um, where they were regarded as, as really beautifying the golf course, if you will, as well as the environmental benefits that you had. Um, so yeah, every course we've worked at in that regard uh, has been sort of a home run. And, and so I hope that continues to happen. The rebates have stopped. So that has slowed a little bit, obviously, but um, <laughs> You know, droughts are cycles and, and it will come back. Right. Right. No, for sure. Well, you can count on that in Southern California. And I, I totally agree. I mean, you know, taking out a lot of the turf and particularly in under some of the trees, putting in the pine needles and stuff, it just looks beautiful. Um, it's very natural and um, it's it's been kind of a win win for sure. Um, one of the uh, other topics I wanted to sort of maybe just get into um, towards the end of our conversation here is kind of how you think about when you go about designing, making it playable for the average player, but challenging for the elite player. And, you know, I mean, does that, and, and I guess that'll get a little bit into sort of the distance hold debate, which we can talk about, but I'm just sort of curious kind of how you think about that when you're doing your designs, are you thinking about 
you know, well, gee, this is a member club and I just need to make it for the members, but I'm sure some of these clubs and, and I, and I know some of the ones you've picked off, you know, have, um, aspirations for holding, you know, championships, um, uh, at least qualifying, if not, you know, actual, you know, regional championships. So, you know, how do you sort of think about, you know, making it kind of be something that works for everyone? Yeah, sure. Well, if the majority of our work is on these old classic courses and their member owned courses or private clubs, um, I can generalize that, that we, we have a very significant, um, What's the right word? We, we really pay attention to the playability and wanting it to be a fun golf course, wanting it to play fast. Um, I would say unless we're dictated by a club to make it more challenging or make it harder or make it longer, which are sometimes requests, but not often, um, we go the other way and we try to make it more playable and more, like I said, more fun. Um, part of that just comes out of um, other things we're trying to accomplish to get away from a tree line golf course and turn them more into groves with open space between Brentwood's a great um, example of that. Um, and that's naturally going to open up golf courses and make them a little bit more playable. Other times we look at the, a lot of times changes that happen where uh, bunk, uh, golf courses became bunkered front, left, front, right over many decades. Yeah. That wasn't the original right. design. Brentwood's right. another great right. example of that. Yeah, and, it sure is. <laughs> uh, and we really, have a belief in opening up one side of a golf hole, maybe making the other side more challenging, but providing an avenue or an alternate way to play the hole up on the ground, um, up into one side of the green, or maybe to one side of the green so that you can come in from there. Um, and so uh, that's something we're, we're very cognizant of. And, uh, you know, I think it's important. I, 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 as I start to play the game more and more that way and less in the air, you know, I have an appreciation for it, and um, I, I think it's important. And luckily, um, the term firm and fast, which is is how a golf course can be presented, where it, it plays fast, it plays firm, you can bound the ball around the golf course, is um, uh, respected and clubs are going to as well. And that they have to work hand in hand. Obviously, if we create a way to run the ball in, but the golf course is overwatered and balls plug on that approach shot, then you know, we're not really marrying the two concepts, missions where the ball can bound around the golf course and we can encourage the ball to be on the ground. Um, it becomes a lot more playable, a lot more fun. The game plays faster and, you know, all those other benefits. There are some clubs, of course, as I talked about, that want to be longer and want to hold championships. And we, we absolutely can work in that direction. Um, it's often that we accomplish all these other changes or, or restorative elements to encourage fun and playability but also, you know, look for where can we bring some some championship tees back, and that's that's kind of uh, easy hanging fruit, if you will, if there's area to do it. It's not an expensive thing to do, and and that might be ten or twenty percent of the players at a club that are going to go uh, enjoy those back tees. But um, otherwise, we're not trying unless a club asks us to to add fifty bunkers and, and plant a thousand trees and make it a, a slower, more difficult challenge just for the sake of doing so. Right. No, I can appreciate that. And I, and I just totally would echo the firm and fast point. Um, I know that, you know, that was certainly something that we've tried to do at Brentwood. And um, uh, I just generally feel like that is so much more of a fun way to play golf. Um, and, uh, you know, my, you know, I, I particularly love band and dunes and, you know, usually go up there at least once a year. And, and I mean, the kind of, um, 
shots you get there and, and that firm, I mean, you need the right turf, obviously, but that sort of firm turf and um, it's a lot of fun. There's no oh, doubt it about is. it. It's the way the game should be played. And yeah, you know, it's, we can't really, I, I shouldn't say we can't, but nobody has yet to achieve conditions like band and down here. But um, you know, as long as we're working in that direction, uh, we're, we're going the right way. I agree. So let me just ask you one sort of final thing, just even though it sounds like it may not be as much a part of your portfolio, but just as an observer of the game and, and from an architectural standpoint, when you look at what's going on with the increased distance and, you know, and obviously that's a hotly debated topic um, and with, you know, certainly probably this golf story of 2020 is Bryson and his physical transformation and and certainly capped off by what he did at Wingfoot. Um, and, um, you know, this sort of notion of how's that impacting the whole game, right? I mean, you know, the percentage fairways, you know, if there's ever a championship, you think of like old school, hit the ball in the fairway, it's the U.S. Open. Yeah. And Absolutely. to see him, you know, win by that margin with that um, percentage of fairways hit is sort of Head shake. I mean, you, you saw, I'm sure, Rory McIlroy himself, you know, just, you know, who's not exactly a short ball hitter, you know, just sort of uh, shaking his head at looking at those yeah. numbers and, and, and seeing, you know, and this whole notion, right, if you're going to be in the rough, better have better, you know, whole bomb and gouge strategy, right, you know, better off hitting a wedge out of the rough than hitting a hitting mm -hmm. a five iron and um you know, I just, it's sort of interesting, where's that going to take us, right, I mean, sort of, it's almost like you know, you make it longer, you're almost playing into their hands. Um, and uh, but then again, I look at earlier the year before the pandemic, right? You saw Pebble, which is not really that long, and and Riviera, which I think is a wonderfully designed golf course. And you know, they they struggled with that. You know, and it wasn't because it was you know Aaron Hill's 7,800 yards long. I mean, it was designed to me. So I'm just sort of curious kind of how do you sort of see that evolving do you do you think we're going to need to do some sort of bifurcation and go to a shorter ball for the touring pros or is better design the answer or, or kind of how you think about because certainly the bryson sure. stuff has kind of got people's attention yeah it is uh and i worry about la country club with the US open coming right. up there you know and and um such a challenging golf course to me but gosh those guys and I, I was fortunate to get out and watch the walker cup there so even the young amateur players uh, a couple of years ago or oh yeah let me just interject let me interject on the walker i'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah. that was eye-opening to me right it so was. the back nine, just to give people so the back nine at la country club in the walker cup and they had that big scoreboard with the yardages right next to the pro shop there during the tournament i'm sure you saw but that one, I will never forget that. So, you know, the, the um, I'm trying to think. The 15th is a short par three. So you got nine holes with a par three that's only about 110, 20 yards. And notwithstanding that, I think that back line was like 3,900 yards. Um, it was just crazy how far they stretched it. And what was crazier was, I think Cameron Champ was on that team and some of these other guys, and the distances they were hitting it. I mean, you know, they had 11 was like two. 70 to 80 and i know it's a little downhill but they're hitting irons off that i mean just i that was an eye of that it's in some ways you know i i mentioned bryson but that was maybe in what was that three years ago um and i know the usga likes to sort of have one of their um something like an amateur or walker cup is a little test run before they actually have an open there and i mean 
you just had to sit back and say, wow, I mean, at 3,900 yards and these guys, you're still sort of tagging. So I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just, I was there too. And I had the same reaction, but anyways, go ahead. So what do you, how do you think about this? Yeah. Those are the young, you know, guns who are going to be on tour and already are some of them. And, uh, but they all just hit it so far and it was just mind boggling because you know, I'm looking at this classic course that I treasure so much and Gil Hans did such a wonderful job restoring there and, and it's just sort of you know to some extent they're making some of the design irrelevant um and so I do I do worry about that in the sense of major tournaments you know and this was a great example Wingfoot and it's just sort of being a shame you know um I, I don't know how they solve that other than you know rolling back the ball in the clubs for those guys um, they're not going to, you know, come backwards. And I don't think you can, you can't lengthen some of these great classic courses. So I certainly don't want to see the USGA or the PGA um, moving away from these classic courses because of that. That would be a tragedy. Those are the greatest golf courses right. in our country. And to start moving to modern courses that are 8,000 yards long, that would just be a tragedy. Um, so I, I think they have to um, roll it back. Uh, to some extent in the future. Um, how, how does it impact our work or the clubs that we work at? It's really not, I don't view it as that big a deal. You know, the average person isn't enjoying the benefits of, of Bryson, uh, you know. His, 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 <laughs> That's for sure. Sure, we've all gotten longer. Um, you know, absolutely. Um, has it ruined the game or ruined the courses though? I, I don't think so, you know, so. I view it as a minor minor issue for the average player and the average member and on these old courses, but um, I don't view it as a major issue. So I don't know, maybe there is a, a tour standard and a regular member standard um, and, and that, that would be fine. I don't see the need to roll back to the 1980s baladas, you know, and do that for the average person. Um, if it keeps going, perhaps, but where we are currently um, doesn't particularly bother me. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with you. And, you know, we can look to some other sports where there's a different set of rules. I mean, you can take baseball, right? I mean, thank God we don't have aluminum bats in the majors or we probably right. have fatalities. I mean, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, they have, they have wooden bats there, but it doesn't stop, you know, all the way up through college having aluminum bats and, um, yeah, I kind of agree with you. I, I think, you know, having a, you know, a tour ball or whatever, um, you know, is probably the answer because I, I totally agree. I, I mean, I, I treasure these designs and, and, you know, the ability at the PGA and the U S open in particular to go to these, you know, the Oakmonts, the wing foots, and mm-hmm. um, you'd hate to see those get obsoleted. I, I agree. Yeah. I, I think the only defense you can create and I, and I don't know that I'm right with this, but, is almost less rough and the most firm, fast conditions you could possibly achieve. So imagine if Wingfoot didn't have the rough all around the greens, had you know 20, 30 yard roll offs. The fairways were wider so that the balls would roll, right. go into trees, uh, and it was just as firm and fast as could be. So the ball would just run out and run out and run out. That might not be achievable at an at a course with heavy clay and, and perhaps more rain. Um, but you know, as they choose their venues, it seems achievable at LA, for example. Um, I don't know how else to, to defend it more if defense is your goal. Um, but 
I, I do think there is there is some strategy uh, in how they're set up uh, that needs to go more in that direction. Uh, Chambers was a good example of that. Not an old course, but a, a more modern course, but um, where that was really more the defense. You know, it's a great point, and 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 I can tell you, I heard. Jeff Ogilvie talking about this the other day, and he said almost the exact same thing you just said. And he was referencing the Sandbell courses in Australia, which is right. one place I have not ever had the good fortune to play in, you know, Royal Melbourne and those faces. But he was talking about, you know, the firm and fast and, you know, you just, the ball just rolls into trouble. And, and um, you know, the other, and, and, and I, you know, an example, I think in our country, interestingly, and I've heard Nicholas talk about this is Augusta, that when they added the second cut, that actually made it easier because it prevents the ball from rolling into the trees. Absolutely, yeah. I think they've gone the wrong direction there, and uh, that's you know so easily reclaimed. Um, but for whatever reason, they've they've planted more pines and and added more rough, and and that's a shame in the sense that it's not the architectural intent of of Jones and, and McKenzie. Um, but also, I think I think as you alluded to that that it's actually backfired a little bit um, right. and is holding the ball in. Exactly. So, well, we'll see. We'll get our chance to see what Augusta looks like in the fall. Um, yes, in next excited. month. In this, yeah. this, you know, we've all seen some of the pictures of the fall trees. It's so weird, right? And, um, yes, and yes. you know, and you probably saw the pictures just speaking of Augusta. You know, they, they, I, I had never realized they scalped a Bermuda like that and those drone shots from the other day were just stark that you know that. everything other than the greens were like total brown right yeah it's when you take it down for you know as we know it it's it's ryegrass and it's a, a carpet of green um right and so to oversee the ryegrass they scalp it down to to a bare nothing you know so that they can get the seed to take and uh yeah so that was those were very interesting you know, you sort of look at it and worry that they can get it back. But of course they can't. They know what they're doing there in that sense. I, they, they know what they're doing. They have, I'm sure, enough funds to do whatever, yeah. uh, whatever yeah. the costs are. That money's not a problem for those folks. So we'll all be interested to watch that. Well, Todd, this has been fantastic. Um, I really appreciate you making the time. And again, I we all of us, I know at Brentwood, just uh, – been so thrilled with the work you've done there and made the course so much more fun to play. And, um, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate that and, and continued good luck um, with your tremendous career. And uh, thank you for making the time today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks.